0: While everybody's taking their seats, the only announcement I'm aware of is that uh, the deacons are having their monthly deacons meeting here this coming Saturday morning. No men's prayer breakfast for July, but there will be in August. How shall a young man cleanse his way? by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will... Uh, open in prayer let's pray my father what a privilege it is an honor to be able to come into your uh, presence as a body of believers seeking to be guided and directed taught instructed corrected from your word Father, we pray that as we continue this study in worship, that you might challenge us with our own thoughts, our mental attitude, our focus as we come together, as we prepare to worship both on a Tuesday or Thursday night as well as on Sunday morning with the seriousness, the significance of coming before the creator of the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. And as we submit to your word, that we might see our lives transformed by God the Holy Spirit. And, Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, last time we started to develop some key ideas in what would be called a biblical theology of worship. Now, that's a term that I think a lot of people who aren't academics and aren't scholars that don't really understand. It doesn't mean biblical theology as opposed to a non-biblical theology. Uh, biblical theology is a branch of theology that builds on the different authors of Scripture. For example, you can have a, a, a theology of the Pentateuch, what do we learn about God in the Pentateuch? What do we learn about man? What do we learn about sin? What do we learn about salvation? It's restricted to the writings of Moses in the Pentateuch. And then you could have a theology of wisdom literature. You could have a theology of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so on, all the way into the New Testament. You build Pauline theology, Petrine theology, Johannine theology. And then the next step is when you begin to categorize and systematize. So there's a there's a whole process there, and what happens in doing something like what we're doing in biblic, uh, do, developing a biblical theology of worship, is you're starting in Genesis and working your way through the uh, the Scripture to see what how does it develop? How does man's understanding of worship progress? As you go from Genesis to through the uh, period of the uh, of the Pentateuch up to the Exodus, then how does it develop once they go into the land up to the time of David, which is what we 're studying in Second Samuel, We come to Second uh, Samuel, where David brings the ark into Jerusalem. This is so transformative it is it is on the order of the uh, uh, war for independence in american history it is a significant shift in what has taken place prior to this in in the history of israel and it sets the stage for the building of the of the temple under Solomon, designed, organized, uh, the all all of the w- uh, pre-work done by David, but David was not allowed by God to build the build temple. The temple is a permanent structure that develops on the model, the pattern of the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. All of this is crucial for understanding the concepts of worship, as I pointed out last time, because the New Testament builds on all that vocabulary and builds on all of that, uh, that material. So tonight, last time, we looked at Genesis 1. Tonight, we're going to look at Genesis 2 and some of the things that we learned there in relation to building this pattern. We're going to trace some of the things in Genesis 2 through uh, to the uh, into the New Testament before we come back next time. So we're going to focus on Life and light as a major major theme coming out of Genesis 2. So as I said, we're talking about what does the Bible teach about, about worship. Now, last time I quoted from Timothy Pierce and his work on worship, and he says, In a world where feelings and personal autonomy have become the norm, submission to biblical authority must be the basis and standard by which worship is rescued from the realm of temporal feelings and empty words to that of truth that can transform and renew both the individual and the church universal. He says that in a foreword to a work that he's written on worship in the Old Testament. And so what happens a lot of times in 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 the church age is that we've come out of churches, of people from whatever background, whether it's Baptist or Presbyterian or Bible church, where so much time and attention is focused on the New Testament that there are those who have egregiously ignored the Old Testament with the result that at least one result is that they at least have a somewhat diluted understanding of these concepts when they're developed in the New Testament other times they've ignored them, and in, in some egregious cases that I know of, they never even teach anything in the Old Testament because that's all just for Israel. It doesn't have anything to do uh, with the church. And that was a an extreme view that was held uh, by many dispensationalists. But it's the Old Testament that builds that concept of worship, understanding worship at the time of David when he writes the Psalms, when he... Uh, Organizes and develops the enormous choirs and the orchestras that were present in Jerusalem uh, at all of the feast days. all of the, those things that are going on were were much grander and much greater than anything Israel had seen before and and much and, and developed much more from what Moses understood. And then when you look at what Moses understood and what's what's depicted there because God reveals to him the, the setup of the tabernacle, the structure of the tabernacle and everything, that is so far beyond anything that we see with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that is much greater than anything in the antediluvian period. But as I'm pointing out, there are things that continue through all of these that are present all the way through as you go through. But it's all based on biblical authority. And We live in a world today when the frame of reference that people bring to corporate worship is very subjective and personal. It's all about their emotions, and and the churches play into that. They want to stimulate it. They want to create certain kinds of, for lack of a better term, entertainment, uh, that promotes certain mood swings, things like this that are then defined as worshipful attitudes. And so what we're doing is just breaking this down, looking at what what the Scripture says, that we have to start uh, with the Bible, and that means going through stage by stage what happens. Pierce also wrote, one striking realization is that theology and worship are inextricably tied because the foundation of both is the question, who is our God? Now think about that. In the progression in this series that's lasting a whole lot longer than I ever anticipated and will last much longer, it's um, it, it, it started off as a rabbit trail and now it, it's more of a rabbit autobahn without the Without the unlimited speed, we have a slow speed limit on this audubon uh, but that 's because there's so much here to to work through and to read and and to study. But when we started and we were looking at Isaiah six, what is the core of what happens when Isaiah appears before the throne of God? He is impressed. By the character of God, he is overwhelmed by the character of God, his holiness, such that it pierces his very soul. So that the essence of worship, it seems, has to do with our understanding and realization of who our God is. That if we have a small view of God, if we have a wrong view of God, then we're going to have a rather limited view of worship, and we're going to have perhaps a wrong view of worship. And so we'll say some things about that. So the emphasis is on understanding who God is, and that comes out by walking our way through these, early, especially these early passages that we find in in, uh, in Genesis. Now, it's our working definition, building this off of a definition I originally got from Alan Ross Biblical worship is the celebration turned thanks to the input of some, somebody in the congregation. It's a celebration of having, not just being, which is awfully passive, but having that it, you're holding on to something. That comes out of um, the, what I stud, the study I did in First John that we have fellowship with God. That Greek word, echo, meaning to have and to hold, it's a possession, it's something we enjoy, it's something that is our rich possession, that that fellowship, that rapport, that eternal relationship with God. And so three things are, are brought out in our worship. It's a reverent adoration and spontaneous praise of God's character and works the express commitment of trust and obedience to biblically revealed responsibilities, and the remembrance of God's gracious work of salvation and spiritual growth through divinely prescribed ordinances. All of this does two things. It looks back to perfection, which we had at the Garden of Eden. That's where we are. We're looking back. We're coming to understand the significance of Eden of paradise, the paradise, as John Milton put it, paradise lost. And we anticipate the future, which is, he also wrote about, called Paradise Restored. And he started, Paradise Lost is about the failure of Adam at temptation in the garden. And Paradise Regained focuses on Christ, the second Adam, who passes the test and succeeds against the temptation and lays the groundwork for our future uh, in eternity. So I ask the question, why is the study of Old Testament so important? Because I can just imagine people who just pick up in the middle of this series or come in off the street, why are we spending so much time here? And it has to do with understanding uh, the passage of this whole dynamic that occurs under David is just transforms the whole uh, corporate worship of Israel. So since we're studying David's response to the ark and the presence of God with the ark moving to Jerusalem and its role in the development of corporate worship, which is the frame of reference for the worship of the early church. So we have to understand this as background. And where we see this is, for example, in places like Psalm 80, verse 1. If we remember the Ark of the Covenant, it's a a box of acacia wood covered in gold with a solid gold lid, all of one piece, out of which is formed the cherubim, the two cherubs on top that look down on what is called the place of atonement Uh, it's sometimes called the mercy seat but it's the kepharet which is from the word for atonement or cleansing and what we see in the scriptures i had comments on this uh, as a new thought is that this is where god is enthroned an earthly throne is there in the holy of holies Psalm 81, give ear, o shepherd of Israel, you who lead, the, lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell. It's the Hebrew word simply means to sit, or it's, it's a broad word. It also means to sit on a throne. So in a number of translations, it is translated, you who are enthroned between the cherubs. Shine forth. Then in Psalm 99, 1. Yahweh reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He dwells, Literally, same, same word, he sits enthroned between the cherubs. Let the earth be moved. And then we have another reference to it in Isaiah 37, 15. Hezekiah is praying. This is his prayer when he is beseeching God to protect Israel to preserve them. They're surrounded by the Assyrian army. We'll come back and talk about that maybe a little later. Uh, surrounded by the Assyrian army. And they're, they're just completely cut off. And so he goes in to pray to God, and he addresses him as Yahweh Tabaoth, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel who is, what, enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth you have made heaven and earth notice that this is a extremely high view of god that reduces the creature to his role that he is nothing compared to this deity who created everything so we've looked at the first reason second reason is Because the themes of worship that we find in in the New Testament worship are the same as we see throughout the Old Testament. The idea of a sanctuary, that's what we're looking at. The first sanctuary is Eden, where you have God living on the earth as a place that has been set apart uniquely, distinctly for His dwelling, where He places His image. One of the things that um, I'll bring out in different ways but that, that, that has a residual uh, memory in, and, um, in the religions of antiquity is that if you go to, were to go to Egypt, some of you have seen this in movies and different things. If you go anywhere, if you went anywhere in Egypt, everywhere you went, there was an image of the Pharaoh. When you went to a temple, there's the image of the God. You go to the Philistines, the Temple of Dagon, what's in the temple? It's an image of Dagon. You go into the temple of God, the tabernacle. Is there an image in there? There's no image of God. Where's the image of God? It's the priest. It's you and me. We are the image of God that comes into that temple. What happens is that gets reversed in the New Testament because the temple of God is inside of us. And that is a distinction that is... Uh, that becomes unique in the dispensations in this in this church age, so you have the idea of a sanctuary, a place where God dwells, uh, then there 's the separation from God with sin there 's the sacrifice, the substitutionary idea that 's introduced, the need for cleansing from sin, and then the gradual development of organized worship that includes certain things there 's prayer there 's confession there 's uh, hymns are sung. There are uh, praise is given to God, and then there are seasonal rites of worship. And you have the priestly servants of God. Uh, you have the patriarchal uh, priests in before um, before the giving of the Ten Commandments. You have the Levitical priests. The Aaronic high priesthood. Uh, after the giving of the Law and in the Church Age, we have every believer as a priest. Uh, priest king, but it starts with Adam, as we saw last time. Adam and Eve are placed as priest kings in the Garden of Eden, because they are given the mission to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, and they are told to uh, work and to serve in the garden. Genesis 2:15, two words that are consistently used together to describe the function of the Levitical priests. So the language. There in Genesis two, uh, Genesis one and two emphasizes rulership and being a priest king, and we saw that that's completely mirrored when you get into Revelation twenty one and twenty two as our f- future destiny. Uh, and so, what we've seen so far is that our worship practices are often influenced by worldview. We'll talk a lot more about that. This happened a lot in the ancient world. Uh, you think about the worldview of the Canaanites why did God demand that Israel just slaughter, kill, destroy all of the Canaanites? It's because they had a religious system that was syncretistic. In other words, you came along and you said, well, I'm going to worship Yahweh. They said, great, come on in, we'll put him up on the shelf with all the other gods. It was uh, horrendous because of that. It was insidious and it was malignant because... If, no matter what religious system you had, they just absorbed you into their religious system so that before long you are ultimately worshiping Baal and the fertility rites and whatever, no matter what was going on. So worldview is important because if you don't have your worldview changed, if Romans twelve 2 doesn't happen where you're transformed by the renewing of your mind, then what we've seen throughout the ages is the worship that takes place in the church is imitating religious ideas in the in the worldly culture and it's not part of it's not biblical it's not distinct anymore and that's what we see at the very core of all of this analysis of of what's going on in the temple and the tabernacle is the worship of god is uniquely oriented to him based on a biblical worldview not based on what's popular outside the walls of the tabernacle and the temple second thing is we began to examine this teaching of of the scriptures we go through tracing the dwelling of God in his creation through time uh, developing out these ideas to understand the majesty of God and the role of man and how distinct that is so third thing so that we saw that the tabernacle is patterned after a heavenly archetype. So this isn't just an accident. Uh, we have these verses that, that I've often wondered about. I went through Hebrews thinking about these things and not really sure how, what they all meant. God tells Moses, Let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you. That is the pattern of the tabernacle, the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. There's a divine blueprint for what they made. It's not just happenstance. It, it fits within a broader pattern within Scripture. And in Hebrews 8, 1 and 2, now this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So there's a spiritual heavenly tabernacle. We see that when we look at... Uh, at Revelation. Now, last time we looked at the issue of the centrality of understanding the majesty of God through his creation, and that's fundamental to understanding who we are because we're created in the image and likeness of God, Genesis one twenty six to 28, Psalm 8, 3 through 9, God says, uh, the, the psalmist writes, what is man that you're mindful of him? Because God has a specific uh, purpose, for mankind. Second, an essential feature of our imageness is that we're king priests. I've already mentioned that, uh, created to worship God through our service to Him. This is laid out in Genesis two fifteen, also in passages like Deuteronomy thirteen four, and then in the future in Revelation twenty two three and Revelation uh, twenty one twenty two. Then we come to this chart I began to develop, is that Eden is going to be replicated in some way by the tabernacle and then the temple and then on into the future. So there is a visual lesson plan here. Just like when you have when we, you have little kids and they can't read yet, you use pictures to communicate truth. You go back to the Middle Ages, and in the last year, we went to Italy and saw uh, a number of uh, paintings from... Uh, early Renaissance, Renaissance, uh, medieval—I mean, uh, Byzantine period of the church—things like that—and all of this artwork was there to teach, to remind people of biblical stories and biblical events. They were the early form of PowerPoint. We see these these parallels that occur. That in Eden, there are three parts. There's the earth, and then after there, then. Um, uh, there's the cherubim that are there, but they are then placed to block man from coming to Eden. There's Eden, which is uh, has two components. There's Eden, and then there's the garden that is planted east of Eden. And that threefold development is what we see in the tabernacle. The outer courtyard is comparable to the earth. The holy place is comparable to Eden, and then the holy of holies is comparable to the Garden of Eden, where God met with man, and this was the centerpiece of, of fellowship depicted in this uh, artwork here as the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. Uh, then you had uh, the outer part, and then the world is outside of the uh, outside of the cherubim. This is depicted. Uh, graphically, in the way the the holy the holy place was set up, is that the veils depicted the cherubs who are preventing man from now having access to God, and the only way to have access to God is are, are is is as a result of uh, atonement and sacrifice and God's provision, which are all depicted by these the the part the the furniture that's in the holy place. And what's interesting is, is, as I've taught this many, many times, and we've gone through this, that the lampstand represents Christ as what? As the light of the world. The table of showbread represents Jesus as the bread of life. The altar of incense represents Jesus as our high priest who intercedes for us. That's all what it's depicting in the future. But what we're going to learn is there are aspects of each one of these that looks back to Eden and what happened in Eden and so this is carried forward. Now when we look at the garden of Eden we look at what do we see there when we read through Genesis 2 there are certain things that that we see are present in the garden of Eden. Uh, One is there's a river, a river that flows out of the center of the garden that then divides into four parts. It is the river of life. We see this river of life flowing from the throne of God in the new heavens and new earth. In Revelation uh, 21 and 22, there's this river of life in heaven, but it it there's there's allusions to this all the way through scripture and and it's important to connect those dots because they are usually never connected but they say something about our spiritual life and worship in the church age another thing that we see is in the garden there's mention of of uh, of jewels and gold And that is also uh, present in in the uh, tabernacle and in the temple. We think about the jewels in the high priest's breastplate, and it's all embedded in gold, and you have all of the furnishings of the holy place are in gold. It starts off with you have brass out in the outer courtyard, and then when you get to the outer part of the of the of tabernacle, it's silver. And then when you get inside, it's gold. Think there might be a progression there? That as you get closer to the uh, very presence of God, emphasizing the value of these things, you look at these precious stones that are there, which we'll look at uh, tonight as well. And why are these embedded on the breastplate of the high priest? Each of those 12 stones has carved in it the name of a different tribe of Israel. What's the significance? Well, one significance is that just as those gemstones are valuable, the tribes of Israel are valuable to God, and they are placed over the heart of the the high priest, signifying their centrality and their, uh, their importance. Same thing is true in the Temple, you also have trees in the Garden of Eden. You have two trees. you have the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How are those reflected when we get into the tabernacle and the temple and they are you have uh, you have the representation of their significance inside uh, the tabernacle and temple. You also have the image of God that is in the sanctuary of the Garden of Eden, and that is mankind, male and female created in the image of God. And then it is a place of rest. We rest only in God. And that rest is lost at the fall, and it is ultimately uh, only recovered on the basis of of what Christ did on the cross and we got in a hurry at the end of that that class when I went through that taking us through the, the Sabbath the Sabbath is on Friday begins at sundown on Friday the last day of the work week that completed God's work was the sixth day and then the seventh day is a day of rest, a time devoted to uh, worship of God and the study of Torah, study of God's word and then uh, the first day of the next week is regeneration and new life well i think that it's somewhat significant that the sixth day of a week in before passover in AD 33 ended on a friday the sixth day on friday jesus died he did his work he said it is finished and completed And what happens on the seventh day is he is in the grave and he is resting. And then on the eighth day, which is the first day of the next week, is the day that he uh, conquers death. He rises from the dead and there is new life, a new beginning, which is bringing uh, a new week. So all of that symbolism is there. And just because it's symbolic doesn't mean it's not talking about real concrete things. It's designed as different types of visual aids to teach and reinforce the same uh, principles and the same uh, things that are stated throughout all of Scripture. And so as so I finished a couple of weeks ago, Psalm 132,13 13, and 14, "The Lord has chosen Zion. Why did he choose Zion? You know there's a specificity to this there's an intentionality here that god is doing all of this it's not just happenstance he's desired it for his dwelling place he's going to do what he's going to dwell among the cherubs this is my resting place forever that's that same word used uh, for where god put adam Noach, put him in the garden It's that word that is used of of a special kind of rest related to the millennial rest that will come eventually, the kingdom rest. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to get into looking at Genesis 2 and see what is going on there that is repeated in the coming lesson. So let's just begin by looking at what is going on in Genesis 2 and understand the significance of the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2, 8 and 9, we read, The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, planted a garden eastward in Eden. So it's not identical to Eden. It is eastward in Eden. It is a sub-part of Eden. That's why I say Eden is like the holy place, The tabernacle of God where he dwelt and the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, is comparable to the Garden of Eden. There he put the man, now that's a different word for put than the one that's used in Genesis 2.15, and out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Eden is, therefore, the centerpiece of God's creation. It is the ultimate focal point of all of the earth. I couldn't help but thinking that, that there's always this debate that goes on about uh, UFOs and is there's life on other planets and everything else. And when you come right down to it, 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 there's an analogy here. God creates the whole earth, and the whole earth is filled with animals, and it's filled with birds, and it's filled with fish. But there's one place where there's going to be real life, and that is where God exists, and the rest of it is all secondary, and that's how the earth is. This is where God chose as the place he would put his throne and create the imageness of him, and that by if you understand that biblically, that excludes life out there in the universe anywhere. uh, There's angelic life. That's the only other sentient life there is, but you're not going to find other peoples, and you're not going to find Klingons and Wookiees and all of this other stuff out there. They're just products of man's uh, vain imagination. So the earth is, or Eden is the centerpiece of God's creation. It's the most beautiful part of the earth, and he has filled it with every conceivable thing that man could want or desire or need. It goes beyond any expectation. It has uh, beautiful plants, it has bountiful trees, and it provides food of any kind or nature that he could possibly imagine. And that's where God places his creature, that nuach word there that's used in, in uh, Genesis um, Genesis two fifteen that indicates that this is a place of rest and when we are in the presence of God this is where there is a place of rest as Jesus said come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest rest only occurs in relationship uh, to God and so there God would walk with Adam and Eve. Every day they developed their knowledge of God as he taught them, as he instructed them. This was a time of rich intimacy for them with their creator as that began to expand. And without sin or anything, it's just a time of incredible joy and a time of incredible peace, stability, and happiness. It is Eden is the place of God's presence on the earth. It is later called paradise. Paradise came into our language originally out of the uh, Persian and preceding that from the Babylonian period, and it was a term for a special kind of garden. And in it was a private garden, and in the royal palaces. And in the temple precincts of of ancient Babylon, which is always the counterpart, remember, in Scripture to Jerusalem, they built these step pyramids that are called ziggurats. And as as they built the different floors and the different levels, there were places where the priests lived, there were places where uh, other things took place. But it is all focusing on the upper level, which was to be the the place where the God dwelt. And this was the focal point. And um, it, it has all these same features that we find in the Garden of Eden. Now remember what we've learned here. Evolutionary thought comes along and says this is all the product of human development over time. And as they develop these concepts of God, these ideas of temples that eventually that developed into the idea of the Solomonic temple. That's got it all completely backwards. What you start with is the temple of God, as it were, his dwelling on the earth in, in, in Eden. And then as a result of sin, as the generations goes by, the ideas about God become more and more corrupt and confused and paganized so that you have these pale reflections of ultimate reality showing up in all these different religions. They all have these ideas of a garden. They have this idea of some uh, mountain where the gods live. There's a mountain related to Eden that's mentioned. We'll look at it in Ezekiel chapter 28. You have all these different things that show up as you go through these various, uh, various pagan religions. But that's where that term paradise came from. It is this isolated place nobody but the king or the priest if it's a uh, par- if it's a garden in the temple nobody but the king or the priest could enter into it and it is a special protected garden that is the most uh, beautiful of of that city or of that uh, nation or empire and the memory of the garden as this place of absolute beauty and prof- and, and protection of, of luxuriant growth is, is uh, comes out and is referenced in other places as you go into the Old Testament. For example, much later in Ezekiel 28, uh, 12 through 13, we have this reference to another Eden. I believe this is not, the description does not fit the descriptions in Genesis chapter 2, and I believe this is the uh, original creation before Satan fell, and that uh, it's evidence there, uh, it's a garden, verse 13, uh, this is an address to Satan, the anointed cherub. Uh, He is the power behind the throne. The original 11 verses of the chapter are addressed to the prince of Tyre, who's the human ruler of Tyre, and then the king of Tyre is the angelic ruler or the demonic ruler behind uh, the, the king. In fact, it's interesting when you read through the ancient Near Eastern religions, that they all seem to have this connection between the ruler and one of the gods or goddesses that that is the influence behind their uh, their monarchy but what i want to focus on here is this creature is identified before a fall as living in eden the garden of god and what's present there you have these precious gems sardius topaz diamond beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald, along with gold. Now, if you're reading this, and you're a Jew, that stands out. That stands out very much. There's nine gemstones that are mentioned there, plus gold. Now, I think that describes this original Eden, where God had his throne on the earth before the fall of Satan, and then Satan falls, and I think... That after Genesis one two, there's a restoration. You can't fit this anywhere else. Genesis two eleven, we have the description of Eden, the garden, as God creates it in on the sixth day, and there are these there's a river that flows out from the center of the garden that divides into four. And the first river is called the Pishon. There's no place on earth where this happens today. You know, people always tell you that, well, the Garden of Eden was somewhere over in the Fertile Crescent because you have rivers there like the Euphrates and the uh, Tigris, and then there's the Gihon Spring uh, in Jerusalem, and that that that's the general area of the Garden of Eden. But the flood would have completely shifted the topography uh, as a matter of fact, if you look at the geology that that you have uh, on the on around the Dead Sea, the 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 rock, the geology on the west side of the Dead Sea is completely different from the geology on the east side of the Dead Sea. The geology on the uh, uh, east side of the Dead Sea or the west side of the Dead Sea is uh, no, excuse me the, of the East side of the Dead Sea matches up down in Ethiopia, three hundred miles away. What happened that, that there's such a huge tectonic shift that took place at the time of the flood that you not only have a vertical uh, displacement, you have a horizontal displacement of of three hundred miles. And so when you have that kind of stuff going on, it it completely changes any of the riverbeds or anything else that existed uh, prior to the flood. And when people got off the ark, they just named places after the names of places they were familiar with from before they went on the ark. But this first river, Pishon, we don't know of any other place that was named that. Uh, There's gold. There's gold there. There's bedelium and onyx stone are there. And that's all that's really mentioned there. Uh, After we get out of the Garden of Eden and the original temple of God on the earth, his dwelling place on the earth, and he's building the first temporary dwelling place with Israel, he is designing the priestly garment for the high priest. And there's four rows of three stones each representing the 12 tribes of Israel. There's this, I've underlined the ones that are also mentioned in Ezekiel 28. The sardius, Sardi topaz, emerald, second row is turquoise, sapphire, diamond, third row is jacinth, an agate, an amethyst, fourth row is a beryl, onyx, and jasper. Now, we don't really know for certain what all these Hebrew terms described. There's a lot of good guesswork there. There are some of these stones. I'm not a gymnologist, so I don't know. But a couple of these stones that are translated, at least the English stone, is too hard. It's probably not all of these. It's too hard to engrave it with the name of the tribe of Israel. So there's a lot of discussion. You can pick up five different translations of a Bible and get five slightly different lists of stones simply because we're not absolutely certain what those Hebrew words, words uh, described uh, in terms of uh, uh, the precious stones. So if you were a Jewish and you read Ezekiel 28 and you saw that list of nine gemstones that described the garments of the anointed cherub, what would you think? High that's right, you're thinking high priest. So we, that, that's where we conclude that Lucifer before the fall had some sort of high priestly function toward God. Where does a high priest serve? In a temple. Okay, so we have these these patterns that we see beginning to develop. So we see gold and precious gems in the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle as well as in the, in the temple. Now, let's go on with our description. Now, a river went out of Eden... To water the garden. So now we have water. Water is essential for life. Water in the scripture is, it's literal, but it speaks of the source of life. And throughout scripture, water depicts, uh, depicts life. So a river went out to Eden to water the garden. From there parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. Uh, verse 13, the name of the second is Gihon. Interesting, the spring of Gihon, which is located in the Kidron Valley, just below the Jezreel City, just below the Temple—I mean, the 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 Palace of David. This is the water from the Gihon Valley that was used to anoint the kings of Israel. It is where Hezekiah built his tunnel to bring the water from outside the wall of Israel to inside the walls. It, the water is brought. To uh, Siloam, it's called the Siloam uh, Pool of Siloam. In I think it's in um, uh, John nine when he heals the blind man and uh, washes eyes in the pool of Siloam. In the Old Testament, it's called Shiloh, and this is uh, the, the pool there. And I'll show you some a uh, picture of that. I got one right here. This shows what it looks like uh, today as you are coming out of. Uh, uh, I think that's turned turned around slightly. It's uh, it, The other end is where you come out of Hezekiah's tunnel, and you now see this. They've been doing more and more excavations, and the artwork in the lower right is showing what that looked like, how large it is. The Greek Orthodox Church owns this land on the left side, and so until they're willing to give up rights to archaeologists to go excavate, uh, this is all that we see of the remains of the uh, Siloam tunnel. Here is the old city of David. Here's the temple up here. Uh, This would be approximately the size. It's not that big. It always surprises people. One reason it's not that big, people were not urban. They didn't live in the city. Who lived in the old city of Jerusalem? All of the administrators, the court officials, the rulers, uh, the generals. It was the aristocracy that lived there because they were, this is where the bureaucracy lived. This was the beltway, as it were, at the time of uh, uh, of the of the old city, and down here you have the spring tower that's built right here to cover and protect the Gihon spring. And the reason this is important is because if you don't have water that's protected as a source to come into the city, then you're subject to uh, to to attack. You're subject to losing, being cut off from your source of water, which is necessary for life. And so this was uh, this was important. Um, important thing that Hezekiah did when they constructed all this to give them water during the time of the Assyrian invasion. In fact, this is uh, what the background is in Isaiah uh, chapter 8. So now we're going to play a little sword drill and go back and forth to various passages in the Old Testament to pick up on these these themes because it's important to show that this imagery Runs throughout the Scripture. And it's all pointed somewhere. And I'm hoping that in the next 15, 16, 17 minutes I can get there. Isaiah 8. Now, we've gone through this section of Isaiah before. Isaiah 7 is what? Isaiah 7 and 14. It is a prophecy given to Ahaz that a virgin will conceive and give birth and its name will be Emmanuel. Isaiah 9. Isaiah uh, chapter 9 um, we get there, Isaiah chapter 9, uh, 6 is where the unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be on his shoulder, etc. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty King. This chapter 8 is sandwiched within this prophetic section, and there's a warning that there's going to be an invasion of Assyria. And in verse 5... What we read is the Lord also spoke to me, that's Isaiah again saying, inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shiloach that flow softly. What's the significance there? Well, this pool of Shiloach is where the water provided the water to sustain those who were inside the city of Jerusalem at a time of siege. It is the source of life them. And uh, this is going to, this this water imagery plays an important role in what comes up uh, after this. In verse 6, it uh, says, the, uh, you rejected the waters of Shiloh. And later we're going to see that, that refusal, rejection of these waters uh, is, is tantamount to rejecting God and His provision of life for the people. They've turned their back on Him. They've Turned to various idols. And so this is why they're coming under judgment. He um, said uh, these people refuse the waters of Shiloh to flow softly and they rejoice in Rezin and in Remaliah's son. You think the mainstream media today are traitors. Most of the people then were traitors. What you look at here is that um, uh, Rezin is the king of Syria, the king of Aram. And uh, Remaliah is Pekah, who's only by, mentioned by name once. The other four times he's mentioned as always, is always as Remaliah's son. He's the king of the northern of the northern kingdom. So you have the and, and that's but it's, northern kingdoms totally succumbed to idolatry. So what God is saying here is the people are getting ready to be judged because they've given their loyalty to a false god and a false religion, and they've rejected my provision for them which is summarized metaphorically as the the water that's in the pool of Shiloach, And so he then goes on to say, therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river. Notice this play. You have God's provision of water, but there's going to be a tsunami that comes. And this tsunami comes from the rivers of the Euphrates. What's located on the Euphrates? This is the Assyrian empire. And so The the Assyrian Empire is pictured as floodwaters that come up, the waters of the river strong and mighty, the king of Assyrian of his glory. He will go up over all his channels, go over all his banks. He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck, which is what? Jerusalem, just outside the walls of Jerusalem. He'll reach up to the neck, and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Okay, that's one place that this is mentioned, and and this picture of water and life—it just it's this imagery that that runs through. So Eden becomes a reference to this, and um, it, it's an allusion to water. Uh, this is the, what's what's the pool of Shiloh? Where does it come from? The Gihon springs. Where do you find Gihon first mentioned? You find it first mentioned in Genesis two. I'm just trying. You know, we've studied all of this before, and what I'm doing here is connecting some of these dots to create some of these some of these broad patterns. Ezekiel thirty-six thirty-five. There's a comparison with Eden. The, it, they hadn't forgotten it. Ezekiel is five eighty-six B.C. This is this is uh, forty-five hundred years after create or twenty-five hundred years after creation. This land was desolate that became like the Garden of Eden. It's this picture they recall the perfection of eden the perfection of of paradise joel 2 3 uh talks about fire devours before them behind them a flame burns the land is like the garden of eden before them and behind them a desolate wilderness so uh, it's a picture there they're going toward paradise now now we're going to get into some fun stuff that's just been the introduction let's turn back to psalm 36 And we're gonna connect some dots. We got time. I can't believe I'm making it through this. All right. Psalm thirty-six. Psalm thirty-six is a psalm that contrasts the deception and wickedness of the unrighteous with the faithfulness and obedience of the believer. That's the structure. It's a twelve-verse psalm in the in the English in verse 5 Verse 5 we read after going through these contrasts in the first four verses your mercy o lord that would be hesed your faithful loyal love is in the heavens your faithfulness reaches to the clouds your unrighteousness is like the great mountains Your judgments are great deep, O Lord. You preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O Lord. Oh, leave it there. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your your wings. Okay. Now, I want you to look, before I put the verse up here on the screen, something moved just a minute I gotta fix it no, it's not fixing there now it'll fix because if I for some reason this thing moved Blocking a word. Okay. Over there. Now, verse 8. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. That's the temple. And you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. Remember, we're talking about water. Go back to the Garden of Eden. You've got one river comes up, splits into four rivers this imagery goes on one of the rivers is the gihon the other two euphrates this they have imagery that's significant throughout all of the old testament now we have uh, a reference to being in the temple now the temple is the presence of god the the temple is a depiction this is the glory of god it represents the bounty of god the blessing of god it's the most beautiful building probably in the ancient world. I, 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 nobody knows exactly what the Solomonic temple looked like, but it was incredible. The temple at the time of, of Herod at the time of Jesus was considered a, a wonder of the ancient world. There was no other temple in the world like the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, so it is a picture of God's blessing to his people where they focus on his provision. And that's what's going on here in in, uh, in, in verse 8, talking about you, they're abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, that is the temple, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. And you're sitting there going, okay, talks about a river. What's going on here? Well, what's going on here is the word that is translated pleasures is the Hebrew word eden it's the same word you have in Genesis chapter 2 what happens in the lexicons is that they 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 translate it as delight and they think it's two different words they're not two different words remember a the paradise whole concept of paradise is a garden of delights that were built for a king this 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 whole thing this whole thing fits together you give them drink from the river of your pleasures, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Okay, let me go back to verse 6 a minute. Okay, so what happens here, after he's contrasted the uh, unrighteous and their lack of belief in the acts of the wicked, then there's a contrast with, with the righteous. And the focus is not on the the the... the those works of the righteous, but on the one toward whom they are directed. It's directed toward the nature of God and his mercy and his faithfulness and his righteousness and his judgments in, in verses 5 uh, five and 6. And so the whole focus here isn't on people as it is on God and the provision of life and meaning that he gives This is where we go into verse 8. They, that is, those who are righteous, those who worship you, are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. Now, this term relates to one of the offerings that is brought to the temple. There is the peace offering, and it's the only offering that was a communal meal where the people who came into the temple would share the meal with God. It is that picture of, of, of fellowship, of that union uh, with God. And, and literally what it says here, the fullness of your house, is the, the Hebrew word deshen, which means the fatness of your house. The fatness of your house. Remember, not long ago, it, I, I came to realize that this emphasis on the fat is you don't have fat sheep and fat cattle unless God's blessed you with a lot, and so the reason you give the fat to God in a sacrifice is a picture of of giving back to him a portion of of his generosity uh, to you as a, as a sinner, his graciousness and so so the fact that it's the fatness of your house indicates prosperity and blessing of God. And that God has provided for his people the best food in his sanctuary. And then there is a reference here to uh, the River of Eden. This takes us back to the glories that God gave mankind originally, his provision for them uh, from the very beginning. So it's a reminder of all that God has as given and provided originally for man that he, the river symbolizes life, that he is the source of life, and he is the one who gives everything uh, necessary for life. And then in verse 9, we see an con- important connection take place. For with you is the fountain of life. God is the source of life. It is pictured as this fountain. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we have this reference to light. In your light, we see light. The light here refers to God's revelation in the broad mega magnum sense. But we see light. We understand truth, lowercase truth, because God sheds his revelation on our life so that we can understand it. But it connects two important aspects that we see in God's revelation. He is life. He's the creator of life. He's the sustainer of life. And that life is related to his, his light and his illumination so that when we move into the New Testament and we come to John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then we read in verse four, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The more I'm reading, John, I heard a pastor some years ago Many years ago, when I before I went to seminary, made a comment that's always wandered around the back of my head, and only now have I come to really appreciate uh, the the great dimensions of what he said. That that he said, Gospel of John can't be understood if you don't understand the tabernacle and the temple. And and what do we see? We see Jesus as the bread of life. We see Jesus as the light of the world. We see Jesus as the intercessor. All of these ideas are in John. They come right out of, and they're exhibited in the imagery of the tabernacle and the temple. So in him was life, and his light was the light of men. And then we get to John 8, 12. And in John eight twelve, interestingly enough, Jesus is in Jerusalem for a feast day. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, a couple of things happen on the Feast of Tabernacles. One of them is... There's there's 12 menorah and they light the menorah but there was also an enormous menorah outside the temple and they lit that it's about life and Jesus stands up on the day they light the menorah on the day uh, on the feast of tabernacles and he says I'm the light of the world he identifies himself with that menorah he is the light of the world and He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have what? The light of life. See, there's that connection of those two things. Now, next time I'm going to develop this more, but in the Garden of Eden, you had two trees. One tree was called what? The tree of life. The menorah has eight branches. What has branches? Trees. It is a representation of the tree of life. Now, when you look at this, it has almond blossoms on it. It it has all these little things that are on it. All the decorations are all uh, representations of blossoms and, and blooms and the flowers on the almond tree. And why the almond tree? The almond tree is the first tree to bloom in the spring in Israel. It says life is coming after the bleakness of winter. It's not as garish as a forsythia, but it's announcing. That's what the almond does is it announces life. So Jesus is saying, I'm the light of life. He's connecting those two ideas. Now, we're talking about a river in Eden. And I've got to finish this. In Psalm forty-six, four we read, There's a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. Now, if you read the commentaries, everybody's trying to figure out what the, what this river is. How, many, John, you've been to Israel. Did you see a, a river in Jerusalem? Nope. Yeah, you did. You probably tromped through it. Oh, tab- it's the spring of Gihon. That's the river that is flowing that provides life for the city, but people want to overstress the tax and figure out what does this mean it 's just simple it means this, that God has put this incredible spring under Jerusalem to provide the sustenance for life in in, in the city and so this is this is picked up this idea. Uh, and it represents God and God's provision. Jeremiah 2, 13, one of the great passages to t- to teach on. Uh, God confronts Israel and says, "For my people have committed two evils; they have forsaken me for the, the forsaken me the fountain of living waters." What's flowing out of Eden? The river of life, living waters. That's what we're going to have coming out of the throne room of God in the new heavens and the new earth. God himself, as the source of the river of life, identifies himself as living waters. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water, the, the false idols, the false gods that they're worshiping. Jeremiah 17, 13. O Yahweh, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who, de- and then, There's a quote, God speaks, those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken who? Yahweh, the fountain of living waters. So God is identified with water and that water is identified with life. Jesus shows up and he is saying that he is uh, life and that life is the light of men. But what does he say in John 4? In John 4, he goes to the woman at the well. What are you drawing out of the well? You're drawing water out of the well. And he's talking to the Samaritan woman. And he states to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you what? Living water. You can't understand that if you don't go back through what I've gone through in terms of the text and the role of water and life as, it's, as it is. as as this what this meant in the Old Testament and in in Judaism, and then Jesus says something in John chapter seven that relates to us. On the last day, this is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember what he did on the first day? He's, he's, well, later this day, actually, because that was John 8, so that's in the next chapter. The last day, the great day of the Feast, Jesus stood up. Later he's going to stand up and say, I'm the light of life. Here he's going to stand up and say, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's connecting the dots right there going all the way back to the river of life in the Garden of Eden. And out of his heart will run rivers of living water. This correlates to the role of God the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer in this church age. As we become the source of the message of life for people. And what, what is the Indwelling of the Holy Spirit referred to when we get into first corinthians don 't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and out of the temple flows these waters rivers of living water, so that ties it together next time we 'll come back we 're going to hit these themes again because we 're going to see how it works its way out we 're going to look at that temple furniture again, the tabernacle furniture, and everything, but it 's tying it together so that it we see in a in a visual image in the Old Testament what is fulfilled in the New Testament and how the worship that we should have, the mentality that we should have, should be based on this kind of mentality that we see depicted in the temple worship of the Old Testament. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to reflect and tie together these themes of Scripture. Help us as we probe the scripture, what this means and the implications of this for the unique spiritual life of this church age, our walk by the spirit, uh, because, as Jesus also said in these same passages that we were to we are to worship by means of the truth and by means of the spirit and so Father we're just uh, amazed at how your scripture ties together, fits together and uh It should enable us to gain a greater sense of your glory and your magnificence, which should cause us to worship you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.